This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, May 21st, 2014. And today for Current Jewish Questions, we're going to go back to a topic we kind of sort of introduced before Pesach um, on Judaism versus science. And this is a really big, deep, fascinating subject that you're going to find a lot of people writing and speaking about. Uh, And some people will take it really ideologically uh, in terms of what's represented, simply because, and we'll lay it out first and we'll see details, the Gemara says a lot of things, many of which today have been proved to be scientifically false. Right? Now, we'll see some, and we're not going to go through everything. I can throw in a bunch of others. Or even if scientifically false, have no scientific you know, basis. For certain things, we can live with. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is, what if there's a halachic consequence? Meaning, if there's a halachic decision that was based on faulty scientific data, what do you do? Right? Additionally, there's a matter of... I don't want to say, uh, honor would be the, a wrong term, but a certain mythic quality that people ascribe to the rabbinic sages of being near infallible, such that did they actually know what they were talking about, or perhaps were they incorrect? Because at the time, I mean, we call them chazal, like chachamim zichor nam livracha, because they're sages. But just because you're a sage in the Torah, does that mean you're a sage in every other part of the world? Now, for some, the answer is yes. Uh, there is an idea you will find people saying that if you, that, that the Torah has embedded in it all the knowledge of the world, such that if you are an expert in Torah, you are automatically an expert in any realm of knowledge. There's an approach like that. Others might say, well, they may not know everything, but what does that mean they don't know everything? Right? Because, I mean, for some people, saying that rabbis who lived, say, in the 5th, 6th century didn't know modern medicine, we could say, yeah, that's entirely reasonable. I mean, you think about the advancements that we've made in medicine in the past 50 years or 100 years, you can understand, let's say, 1,500 years ago, they just didn't know that much, and now we happen to know more. So for some people, there's no conflict there at all, and it's, again, entirely reasonable. For others, again, once you've ascribed a mythic quality to the knowledge of the sages, even saying that can be very threatening. You're saying, well, maybe the rabbis didn't know everything. And a lot of that's going to... I, I think um, a lot of that plays off of to what do we ascribe the rabbinic authority? Is it that you know there were you know recipients of a certain tradition? Was it part of a legal process, or was it something intrinsic in the personalities of the sages that led them that authority, which is almost a charismatic type of authority, which many people extend to today in many forms that we spoke about in the halachic process series. So if you view the sages of having that charismatic type thing, well then any flaw could be very damning. 
Okay, so there's a whole lot that's going on here uh, that even though people might just say, "Oh, here's the Torah," you know, "Here's the sages," and here's science, and might come up with a bunch of ways, there's a lot writing on this uh, that people might not even admit. Because you're talking about an area where it's almost clear rabbis may have made mistakes. And can you say that? And some people even want to say that rabbis didn't make mistakes, and we'll deal with that in a bit. All right? So the first source that we're going to deal with, um, and this is like the primary text when anyone deals with science and Judaism today. So it's a very important text. It's a Gemara in Shabbat 107b. Wendy, start us off. But other abominations, etc. <clears throat> but if one kills them, he is culpable. Which Tanahos us? said our Jeremiah. It is our Eliezer. The R just stands for rabbi or Rebbe. Yeah. Who it was taught, Rev Eliezer said, He who kills vermin on the Sabbath is as though he killed a camel on the Sabbath. Rev Joseph demurred to this. The rabbis disagree with Rev Eliezer only in respect to vermin, which does not multiply and increase, but as for other abominations and creeping things which multiply and increase, they do not differ therein. So stop there. So on Shabbat, and we discussed this in the Sunday class, you're not allowed to kill things. All right. So there seems to be a dispute here over what are the things that we're talking about. So for most things, right, for things vermin, according to the uh, language here, it's kina. Uh, you might recall kina from kinim from one of those plagues, right? Kinim. One of the ten plagues. Passover, right? Okay. So... According to one opinion, and even if you kill like you know some minor insect, it's as if you killed a camel. But there seems to be a machloket on this here, and that there seems to be um, that according to opinion, there is this kina, this type of vermin, insect, whatever, that does not actually procreate. I mean, Oh, sorry, paravarava would be the single form of priyavarivya, paruuravu, to become fruitful and multiply. So according to this opinion, there is a certain species that does not actually procreate. It spontaneously generates. Mm-hmm. Now, anyone remember the experiments disproving spontaneous generation? The whole boiling and the curvy. Now, you're, don't you remember like eighth grade science textbooks here? No. Pasteurization, the boiling no. stuff. No. Uh, okay, you know what? Here's your assignment. Go home, look up spontaneous. So spontaneous generation in a nutshell is that you have random beings of life that just come out into existence. Okay. Right? Now, we know today that that is not true. People believe that for a long time. Uh, where that get, got disproved was the experiment where the guy actually boiled the broth, which and did some, like, he cut off the top such that, like, bacteria stuff couldn't get in to show that, you know, if, if you leave, let's say, chicken soup, stuff is going to grow on it. But it's not because it's growing natively from the chicken soup. It's stuff from the outside is landing on it and is, you know, breeding in there. Mm-hmm. So they did an experiment that would kill, kill off everything, not allow new stuff to come in, that showed that there is no such thing as spontaneous generation, but rather it's an outside source. Mm-hmm. All right? Okay. Point is, you have a source here that says 
something that we know to be scientifically incorrect. Mm-hmm. All right? That much is clear. Okay? Here's another example. Uh, it's, it, it sounds like it's, it's kind of a weird case. Risa, it's a Gemara in Bechorot 45a. Rav Judah related to, in the name of Samuel. The disciples of Rav Ishmael once dissected the body of a prostitute who had been condemned to be burned by the king. Right, incidentally, I just love these introductions as like, <laughs> here's the interest, like, wait, what? But like, that's not, it's almost like, matter of fact. Yeah, just out of the book. Oh, yeah, uh, they were about to dissect the body of a prostitute that was executed by the king, but that's not important. Here's what is important. <laughs> yeah, burying the lead. <laughs> anyway. They examined and found 252 joints and limbs. They came and inquired of Rav Ishmael, how many joints has the human body? He replied to them, 248. Thereupon they said to him, But we have examined and found 252. He replied to them, Perhaps you've made the post-mortem examination on a woman in whose case scripture added two hinges in her sexual organ and two doors, muscles of the womb. So there seems to be a, a tradition that there are 248 bones in the human body. But they actually did an autopsy and found that the number was different. So there was an answer that said, well, you know, really, here's how you can account for the differences. Now, was that actually true or not? Hard to say. I honestly have never dissected a cadaver. Is anyone here dissected a cadaver? See, we could accuse Jamie for this. Did she ever dissect a cadaver? Probably. She's probably been closer than I have. Well, she's, she's seen... Like I think she's witnessed. She has a lot more medical training than anyone else here, is my point. I guess so. Okay. Right? So you can do a, you can check, right? But here you had a tradition that goes against, even in the time of Chazal, Mm -hmm. the empirical data that they had in front of them. Josh, here's another interesting one. A you belonging to Habiba? Mm hmm. Habiba was seen dragging along its hind legs. Said Rabbi Yemar, it is suffering from a hip disease. Rabina demurred, perhaps its spinal cord is severed. It was thereupon examined and was found to be as Rabina had thought. Nevertheless, the law is in accordance with the view of Rabbi Yemar, for a hip disease is a common disorder, whereas the severance of the spinal cord is not common. All right, so here's... The context here, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is uh, discussing certain illnesses regarding animals. Uh, regarding a kosher... In order for an animal to be kosher, uh, it cannot... It, it has to be healthy enough that if you let it on its own, it could survive for a year. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it would be considered a trefa. Right, so if an animal gets sick, that it's going to die within a year, even if you shacht it properly, is not going to be a kosher animal. And there's a whole, lots and lots and lots of stuff about how do you go about determining this. So here, there seemed to have been an animal that was, you know, drag again, dragging its hind legs, and says, well, you know, one person said it's a hip disease, the other said maybe it's a spinal cord injury, right? So it, even though it happened to have been a spinal cord injury. The Hoch is not like him, because that's not normal. Mm-hmm. Now, this is also kind of weird. You've got empirical data that seems to show, hey, this is what it is. On the other hand, 
halacha goes by what's commonplace. Now, I don't know the statistics about hip disease versus spinal cord injuries in animals. But it's also one of those things that you don't really know until you kill the animal and you take it apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone here know what phrenology is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's phrenology? And not the album by the roots. <laughs> um, it's where you examine the bumps on your head and wherever you have a bump or a divot, it tells the phrenology reader what sort of personality or what Yeah. This used to be part of scientific thought that different aspects of your personality or son's personality were relegated to certain specific parts of the brain. Parts of those happen to have been found true. Like we know certain parts of the brain do certain things. Mm -hmm. But this was regarding actual personality traits. If anyone's interested, there's the Mueller Museum in Pennsylvania. Muter? So I was actually there once on a date. Um, it, it, it's a wild place for a date. I actually spoke about that once in shul, about how crazy this place is. It's a museum of the history of medical... Uh, it's basically a museum of medical history and how medicine was taught. Um, they've got really weird exhibits like John Wilkes Booth's spleen on display. And yeah, so it was. It was definitely a weird date, and I actually spoke about it in show once. And someone says, "Oh yeah, we got married there." I'm like, what? So apparently downstairs, and and here I was thinking like this was the weirdest thing ever. And yeah, it, but the truth is, it is a very strange museum. One of the things I picked up there, though, uh, and I'll explain why why this is all relevant. Is one of these ideas with phrenology um, was that the shape of the criminal mind was a certain way. Mm-hmm. Now, so the the thing was, let's say you agree with that premise that criminal psychopaths, sociopaths have a brain that looks a certain way, well, then you don't need to do a trial. You just take out the brain and see, hey, look at what the brain is. But they realize that you can't do that without actually killing someone. Mm-hmm. So it's really bad. It's, it's almost like, you know, she's a witch, burn her. Mm-hmm. Like, well kind of dead, so... Nope, we were wrong, and then you're, you're kind of stuck. So it's kind of like here, too. right? When you don't know any better, right? there is a bit of that scientific method of what's common. What do you assume something is? Even if someone might have been correct on, a, on an actuality level, when it comes to halakha, and you can't know for certain, and you have to play by you know your best guess... Halakha is you go by what's most common. And that's actually a recurring pattern within halakha. You only, like, there are certain things where Gemara didn't legislate things because they weren't common. Or, you know, when there's something which, again, is more common, you assume that what's more common is what's actually going on. Why? Because that happens to be more common. So there's a certain degree of rationality here, even when something might go against what immediate, even if something might have go against the current situation, when you need to make assumptions, you're allowed to assume based on the majority of situations. All right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one answer that we have to the question of, you know, what do you do when things are off? Well, it means, well, what do you, what do you mean by off? Right? You, on one hand, you have empirical data that says one thing, but you can also have majority in the other case. So when you know for certain something is true, well, then fine. But let's say you don't know for certain. You know, go by some sort of the majority here. 
there are a whole bunch of other things that you find in the Gemara that just seem to go against what we know, again, to be scientific fact. Uh, you have Gemaras and Brachot that talk about what foods are good to eat and foods that are not good to eat. There's a Gemara too about I wasn't able to find again uh, that says something like, if you have sex standing up, you can't get pregnant. A whole bunch of these things that, again, we seem to know might not be true. The Gemara has another approach to this, which kind of gets extrapolated in later sources. Um, begins here with a Gemara in Sanhedrin 69b. A rabbi's taught, if a woman sported lewdly with her young son, meaning a minor, and he committed the first stage of cohabitation with her, Beit Shammai said, he thereby renders her unfit for the priesthood. Beit Hillel declare her fit. Rebchia, the son of Rabba Bar Nachmani, said in Rebchista's name, other state, Rebchista and Rebzeri's name, all agree that the connection of a boy aged nine years and a day is a real connection, while that of one less than eight years is not. Their dispute refers only to one who is eight years old. Beit Shammai maintaining, we must base our ruling on the earlier generations, but Beit Hillel hold, we do not. Now, where do we know that the earlier that in the earlier generations, Dorotarishonim, a boy of eight years could beget children? So there seems to be a dispute here over what's considered halachic or sex from a halachic perspective, and there seems to be a dispute here regarding a kid who's eight years old. Now, the assumption is that there was a time when it was assumed that an eight-year-old could, in fact, have sex. Is that true today? I, my limited knowledge seems to be no. All right? But what's interesting here is a distinction between Dorot Rishonim, earlier generations, and what we have today. Another example of this is um, first the Mishnah in Yuvamot 6.6. If a man took a wife and lived with her for 10 years and she bore no child, he may not abstain any longer from the duty of propagation. If he divorced her, she is permitted to marry another, and the second husband may also live with her no more than 10 years. If she miscarried, the period of 10 years is reckoned from the time of her miscarriage. Gemar Nyavamot 64b says, Rav Yehuda, the son of Shmuel ben Shilat, stated in the name of Rav, that was only taught in respect to the early generations who lived many years. In respect to the later generations, however, whose years of life are few, only two years and a half, corresponding to three periods of pregnancy, are allowed. Again, there seems to be an approach here that something changed... And therefore, there should be halachic repercussions. In another use, another idiom that you may find is called nishtane hateva, nature changed. All right. So one approach that people will have to conflicts between science and Torah is that really the rabbis were always correct, but nature changed wasn't that they got it wrong, but the scientific world changed. And you got two examples of that in the Gemara, or at least some idea that some part of nature can change. To give an example where one, one, this, one of these times was used, my cousin was in yeshiva in Israel, and was re- or at least as he told me, he was reading a sefer that talked about uh, the sun revolving around the earth. So my friend said, ah, oh, so you see here, the author of this book was wrong. 
one of the Ramim said, you can't say that. It's like, but, but, but he said the sun revolves around the earth. Well, maybe it did in those days. Right? That would be an extension of the argument that what we know of the physical world might have changed. Is it cosmically possible? Sure. I mean, I wasn't there then. I mean, crazier things have happened. What do you think? Is this a convincing argument to you? Why or why not? No. Why? I don't know if nature changes. Okay. What do you think? You say no? It just seems to me that they're going with the argument of... You can't argue because you'll never be able to prove your side correct. I mean, they're just going to say, well, we weren't there, so we don't know. So if there's, you know, there's always going to remain some shadow of a doubt to say, oh, it was like this, you know, it it just was. There's no way to argue against that, really. True. Meaning, we, since we do not have a time machine, we, we can't figure that out. But two important points to mention. One, anyone here hear of evolutionary biology? Yeah. What is evolutionary biology? Their biology changes over time. Biology changes yeah. over time. Meaning, yeah, I mean, well, it's not bio- Like, you have organisms that through selective breeding might adapt over time. Um, and there's a whole field of study on that. Would you say that's Nishtaneha Teva? Right? Because you could have like a certain type of bird that goes extinct or somehow, you know, crossbreeds with something else and bam, you've got yourself a new species. Mm-hmm. Now you said about you can never prove it wrong. So this is also a fascinating point of what do you do with this information? Let's say you make an argument of Nishtaneha Teva, nature changed. So what does that mean practically? You know what things are today. All that can do is say, well, when the rabbi said this, they weren't actually incorrect. But today you know differently. Mm-hmm. right? So you could, in theory, eat your cake and have it too. You can say the rabbis were right then, and we're right today. And it's a way almost of saving face for the rabbinic sages. Mm-hmm. All right? Now, again, those are for areas where you can have drastic differentiations. Um, maybe, th- and you know, the truth is, you can also have machlokan on those too, right? But again, who's going to be right? Who's going to be wrong? And what ramifications would they have in today's halacha, right? Would you say, well, if nishtaneha teva, if the nature changed, shouldn't the halacha change with it too? Right? And that can also lead to a whole bunch of dangerous stuff as well. Because once you say, well, things change, halacha changes, you apply that to society. It's an area which I've said numerous times or comically inconsistent with about to what extent do we adapt to a newer reality. Right? But there are times even modern day where people just speak with while getting the science wrong. And maybe there's a distinction there as well. So you might remember the class that we gave in electricity. Right? There were numerous opinions that we saw in electricity that were incorrect. Not because the rabbis were idiots, but they weren't physicists. And based on what we know of electricity, many of their statements were just flat out incorrect scientifically. All right? So that's an important component there. Questions or thoughts so far? Nothing? Josh? No, I mean, it, it's... I don't know. I just keep, I keep thinking back to it that, I, you know, I feel like it's a case-by-case basis, like you were saying, like, about the uh, maybe the, the planets changed. I mean, it just seems... It seems highly improbable. I mean, I guess... 
it's a tough situation because well as far as the planets changed uh i don't study astronomy or astrology but apparently based on the rotations uh enough of the constellations have changed such that the constellations that we may be seeing today might not be the same constellations that they saw 2000 years ago mm-hmm. anyone hear anything like that all right well that could be incorrect never mind then um <laughs> You know, there could be any number of differences that happen, such that even if you want to speak about a mazal, right? When we gave the class on mazal, one of the explanations I gave, or even with the whole Sigulot Simanim and superstition thing, was that it could very well have been their science, right? Abaye has a lot of quotes in the name of his mother-in-law about these old wives' tales that they treated as actual fact, or at least that he treated as actual fact. Maybe we know more. Maybe that was their science, mm-hmm. right? But if it was their science, right, would Chazal have actually said, oh, this must be the case? Meaning, let's, here's an example, right? When Rambam writes about um, taking care of yourself, he says you follow the best medical advice you have in your day. So Rambam writes a whole bunch of things of like things that you should or shouldn't do. But according to the opinion of the Rambam, where it comes to taking care of yourself, it's like, well, this is the best information we have today. You might have something, you know, different. Like, I can't tell you how many times margarine and butter have swapped in my own lifetime about which one's better. Uh, now butter, I believe, is ahead because it's yeah. natural. But, yeah, it, you know, if people keep changing their, you know, it's to keep changing their minds. We constantly know more. So you go with the best information that you have. So when Rambam, you know, in, it's in Hilchot Deo, and he really goes through details about what you should eat, how much you should eat, and all that. Is that true today? Probably not entirely, certainly not universal. Meaning, find me anyone, like any diet that you would apply universally. Right, it doesn't happen. But he also said it's important to follow the science of your age. Did Chazal also view that? Now that's also a little bit difficult too. But just from the end, from what we're seeing in Yavamot about you know them saying like, well, there was this way, and now things have changed, and it's differently now. Like, I guess it isn't flat out saying it, but to me, that just says like, look. Things change, and mm-hmm. one must change with them. Is that, like, people can't just kind of be okay? Saying- it seems he's okay with that. Right. But when he also says things change, keep in mind that what he's doing is it's a way of him retaining the truth of previous generations with the reality that they're experiencing in the present. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like you said, it's like, what do you mean? It's impossible for that to happen, right? You know, people living longer. Well, so you're saying it should change every, you know, couple of years, depending on what the average life expectancy? An average life expectancy in one country can be drastically different than life expectancy somewhere else. What do you do with that? Although the truth is those are kind of skewed usually because of infant mortality rate. But whatever. Um, yeah. Again, fascinating questions here, which is why I wanted to take it slowly and at least go through this idea of nishtaneha teva. There is, again, some idea in the Gemara that it is possible for the natural world to change. Did they actually believe this scientifically? Possibly. There are also religious components involved about not rejecting previous tradition, but also not ignoring the reality in which you live. I mean, you don't find people saying, well... 
this is what I see, oh no, you're wrong because we have a tradition. Right? Even when the you know, they dissected the prostitute, they tried to reconcile it. Oh, here's how you get to the counting, not what you see in front of your own eyes is wrong. You don't see that dismissal of empirical evidence completely. Right? And that's an important component too. So today if there's a scientific thing like say, oh well that's not actually happening the way you think it is. Well, Chazal, as far as I know, don't seem to say that. At best, you can say, well, there may not be a contradiction between now and then, and try to resolve that somehow. Were Chazal okay with those? I don't know. It's hard to get inside people's heads. But it's important to realize just how much of a religious mythology is attached to the process here. All right? Any questions or thoughts on this? There are things that are bugging you. No? Brain fried? A little. Oh. Risa? No, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a, a difficult thing to process and kind of, you know, work with. But I, I hear everyone's different point of view in the matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. To me, at a certain point, like... Um, just trying to reason all of this out and logic and, you know, could the sages be wrong? Could they not be wrong? Like, I feel like in the end, it being part of religion, some of it just comes down to faith regardless. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's part, in any religion, at some point you need to have faith that even if there's no pure logical reason as to what you're doing is correct, you believe because of your ancestors and your teachings that it Hmm. is what you do. So even if there isn't a clear proof, it's just part of being... So that's fair. I think that's a very fair point. Especially, you know, the main core component of Jewish faith would say even be the existence of God, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, can't be proved. Mm -hmm. Where this gets, I think, a little more challenging is... You know, just as it's impossible to prove God, I think it's also impossible to disprove God. When you're dealing with things like science, right, it's the classic Groucho Marx line, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes, right? You know, you want to say, you know, hey, you know, there's this type of insect spontaneously generates, but you know it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an important distinction there, meaning you're not talking about a halachic uh, reality. You're talking about almost this, you're an actual reality, like whether or not pots absorb taste, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. I mean, I don't really taste the stuff, but from a halachic physics perspective, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. But then you also have to suspend disbelief when they're telling you things that just contradict what you see, mm-hmm. right? And that can be a little more complicated. Or you know, you do these double-blind test studies. Um, I mean, we did a bit of that with the Sigulot Simonim and Superstition thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can do these studies and like, well, let's see what happens if you do these sorts of things. Does this, in fact, hold true? Mm-hmm. Right? And then what do you do? Because there's a very big difference between saying, yes, we're part of this halachic legal tradition, and we're telling you how the world works, only we happen to be incorrect, again, due to lack of knowledge, or they did the best knowledge that they had in their day, but it might in fact be antiquated. So these are some pretty challenging questions uh, that, as you could imagine, again, you have lots of disputes about these, and people will you know, really take these to heart, and people will 
almost, I don't want to say propagandize of it, but that's actually not a bad term. And that people will get very ideological about how do you treat scientific, mis- or I don't want to say scientific mistakes. Um, because even that's like a loaded term. How do you deal with these poor, uh, things in Chazal and other rabbinic sources that have been demonstrably proved to be scientifically false? Okay? He, a lot of ideology embedded there, and it's important to know the ideology, what it stands for and what it represents. All right, let, but I also think that for the sages, there was a lot more scientific empiricism than we give them credit for. So we gave one example here with the um, with the U that you know what they went with the majority of cases. Uh, do you guys remember the Gemara that we did about the Kamea on Shabbat, the healing amulet? No. So I don't remember what year we did it in. At some point, everything just comes a blur. So there's a Gemara in Shabbat that talks about going, you were allowed to go out with a healing amulet on Shabbat if it was proved to be an effective one. What does it mean, effective? Remember? If, it's, if it works three times. If it works, very good. See, you remember. If it works three times. What does that mean, work three times? Well, you think about one of the elements of the scientific method is reproducibility. Right? So at a certain point, like, could it be a coincidence? Sure. But after a while, I mean, that whole correlation causation thing. So they didn't have it down completely, but there was at least something there. What makes an amulet a valid healing amulet? Oh, if it works repeatedly, right? That you can demonstrate that, oh, you know, like uh, three times is important because that sets up a chazakah. Like it's something that's established as a norm, again, because it's repeated. That's something that's drawn out of empiricism, out of something that you see, that you can observe. And as best as you can, when you observe these correlations, two things tend to go together. You think, hey, they must be related. Yes, I know correlation does not equal causation. There's a wonderful XKCD on that. Uh, there's also someone uh, did a one, I think there's a Tumblr that goes through a whole bunch of like crazy correlations, you know, of like, you know, ski accidents and hamburgers or something <laughs> like that. You know, we know better today for a lot of these things, but Hazal tried. All right, so I think it's important to recognize that too. Um, but how you handle this, a lot of it's going to depend on your ideology. And how much do you have invested in the charisma of the rabbinic sages? Possibly even in terms of halacha, how much you think halacha can change along with new scientific data. All right? So this can be very complicated, and you'll see a whole bunch of discussions on this if you go online. Often, again, ideologically driven. But here, at least, are some approaches that even, you know, based on Chazal, try dealing with these sorts of things. All right? Have a wonderful night.